Hello, everyone. Have we got an incredible episode for you today? This is chapter five of the crash course. Today, we're talking about debt. If you want to have the opportunity to be treated like an adult, have complete context and maybe understand where the world is going and why you're going to love this chapter. And of course, the entire crash course, this is only for people who prefer to change through insight rather than pain for those who can't see this coming. I predict a lot of pain is coming and that's going to be the majority of people, unfortunately, but for the few, the proud, the people who are capable of looking at the data, seeing it for what it is, and then making decisions. This is for you today. Debt, big chapter. Where do we go? Let's start here. This is going to be, it's going to take a little while to get through it, but it's going to be worth it every step of the way. Trust me. All right. <clears throat> so here's the thing about debt. We have a debt-based money system right now. Now, not all money systems are debt-based. When we were on a gold-backed system, that's not a debt-based money system. But now we have a debt-based money system, as you learned in chapter two on banking, um, on money, and chapter three on banking. We have a modern system of banking that, well, it creates money out of thin air. When the, when the debt is created, money is created at the same time. So money and debt are linked concepts because we have a debt-based money system. Now, that's a very profound statement. If you really unpack that and you get to understand it at a fairly deep level, you come to this conclusion, which is that there is always more debt than money in the system. This is information that comes to us from the Federal Reserve itself. On the top line, what we're seeing is debt in orange, and then in the blue line is money. So this is total money in the system and total debt in the system. And you can clearly see that there's a lot more debt than money in the system. So how does that work, right? Because in theory, what should be happening is a unit of debt is created, a unit of money is created, and then when the debt's paid back, those extinguish each other, poof, they go away. Problem, interest. Where does the interest come from? Okay, you know, that has to be created within the system and somehow. So that means that you always have to be making more money in order to service the prior interest payments which means more debt is being taken out. This is a classic compounding issue. If you remember the chapter, I talked about exponential growth on compounding. All you need for something to be growing exponentially is for something to be growing by some percentage over some unit of time. Now, what do we know about debt? Well, it's a loan that's taken out for a unit of time, say a year, a month, 30 years, if it's a mortgage, at some rate of interest. So therefore, we would anticipate that any system that is based on something growing by a percentage over a unit of time is going to display exponential characteristics. And this is a perfect exponential function right here. That orange line on top is growing almost perfectly exponentially. So <clears throat> what are the implications of that? Oh, glad you asked. That's why this chapter is so foundational. And when we connect this, to economic growth and where that actually comes from, the world begins to resolve. And then you understand why so many people follow my work and at peak prosperity and have done amazing things as a consequence of being able to understand the implications of this chart. And the implications are that's unsustainable. It is the very definition of unsustainable. So anything that is unsustainable will someday stop. If it stops, what does that mean? What are the implications? Now, for many people, the implications of this is, wow, I better think about where my money is managed or what I consider to be wealth or 
where my food might be coming from in the future or whether or not the system itself is completely unstable. And if so, what does that mean? There are a lot of implications to this. And honestly, if you could just get if it was possible to really understand everything that goes into this one chart, it all becomes clear. And that's the insight. And then that's the insight that allows you to predict where the puck is going to be and allows you to make changes in your life. So that's why I take this stuff so seriously, because we're alive, you're alive at an incredible moment in history when a system that was put in place before any of us were born is going to run into trouble, a brick wall. All right, carrying on. That's why in 2008, this was my core statement I made looking at similar data to this, and I'll show some of that data from back in 2008. It's so quaint, so cute how small the numbers work. Even then, I could see the unsustainability of it all, but obviously it's been sustained for quite a while since 2008. But I made this statement. The next 20 years are going to be completely unlike the last 20 years. Could be. I was just being a little vague and giving myself a big big, um, margin of error, but actually this is how I see the world. This is a big, giant, complicated and complex system that we're within. And these things take time to work themselves out. These tops that form in the markets take time to work themselves out. The process of humans exploding the population, it takes time for those things to begin to really resolve. It takes, just takes time. So I said that in 2008, what are the chances that we're not gonna see something really dramatic by 2028, which was the time frame I gave myself? I'm pretty sure that that was a, a reasonably accurate statement, but as you know, the WEF, for round number reasons, has focused on 2030 as some sort of a, a bogey target date. But a lot's going to happen, and this series is going to explain why this is going to happen outside of and independent from anything that might be happening politically, anything that happens with the so-called elites, anything that's happening with respect to policies or individual decisions humans might make. A lot of that is fundamentally background noise or reactions to this data that I'm going to be presenting to you. Because we have three big E's in this story that are all coming together, that are all colliding at one point in time. We have the environment and everything that's going on there, right? Uh, And I'm not talking about climate change at this point. I'm talking about the loss of insects. I'm talking about microplastic pollutions, uh, estrogenic mimics and things like that that are out there disrupting hormone cycles in humans and frogs I'm talking about. So it's basically pollution. And on the other side, also resources that we're taking out that we've been extracting, high-graded mineral ores and things like that, um, that are clearly coming to a very new part of that story. That's the first E in the environment in uh, energy. Huge story there. We're getting that to that in subsequent chapters of this. Once we start to put the energy story together with the economy story for that 30, then it all really begins to make sense. And again, it just summarizes to the idea that things are changing and they won't be the same again. So seeing that by insight, that is why I do what I do at Peak Prosperity, because I'd much rather change through insight than pain. Those are the two ways humans change, insight or pain. Pain is by far the most common way. But um, to the extent my culture, your culture, seems intent on driving itself into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour, there are things we can do to step aside And it begins with context. It begins with knowing the information and the actual context you need so that you can take appropriate actions. You know what makes that easier? Being around other people who see it that way and who aren't confused and you don't have to constantly re-educate them about why this is important. It's probably why you're listening. 
So let's start with a shared understanding. What is debt? You know, the word is used a lot, but let's just make sure we actually understand what it is. So it is this, it's a legal contract. That's what debt is. It's a legal contract that provides money or currency today in exchange for repayment in the future with interest. That tells us a lot about what's happening in this story. Okay. Um, to reframe this a bit, there would be another way that you could go into debt, and that could be in a, a risk sharing method, right? So I might be the first bank of Chris, and I've got some gold, say, and I'm going to, and maybe it's gold that other people have deposited, and you have an idea for why you would like to borrow some of that gold. I will talk to you about that. You'll say, hey, I'm expanding my restaurant. Here are my numbers. It feels good. So I would give you hundred units of gold today to help expand your restaurant. And then I get paid back if and only if you're successful. So now instead of it being an interest-based loan, it is a profit-based loan. And that is an entirely different beast. So just saying there are other ways these things can be done. I say that because again, every money system enforces some behaviors, punishes others, sets up conditions for how it's going to operate. We live in an exponential debt-based money system. And that has huge implications. So that's all it is, a debt. It's a legal contract. That's that's what it is. All right. <clears throat> now, there's all kinds of things you might go into debt for, right? You could be a mortgage. Uh, you want to buy a house. It it could be that uh, you're going to buy a car. You're going to borrow money for that. Um, you know, you're going to become a, a, a landlord and you're going to start accumulating real estate assets. So there's all sorts of different reasons people will go into debt. And some of them um, are, you know, they're all good. But some are better in terms of the fact that they come with a way of paying back themselves. The debt has its own means of repayment contained within it. So credit card debt, typically not so much unless, I don't know, you're putting, you know, your restaurant expansion on your credit card. But, um, you know, student debt, huge, huge form of debt in households right now. If you go into debt in order so that you're in a STEM degree, maybe computer science or biotech or something like that, um, you need that degree and that degree in order to get the job and, and the, that job over time, you could reasonably make the case will give you a lot of contentment and give you a sense of meaning and purpose and will pay itself back. So there are college degrees that have a positive ROI and there are other ones that have a negative ROI. There's just no real demand for whatever it is that they're producing. And, um, and so it's just, you know, could be college debt, I can't say whether it's productive or not productive, but increasingly we are seeing that for many people, college debt is now has a negative ROI that in fact, you would be better off going into a trade apprenticing than you would going into massive debt to get a degree that really doesn't add anything to your bottom line. So fundamentally, all money that you spend is some form of an investment and whether that's an investment in your experience set or entertainment, I mean, but it's an investment in you. But in this case, you know, college debt may or may not be productive by this standard. <clears throat> Again, if you went into a restaurant situation where it's all crowded and you just need to expand that wall out and you got to put in a few more tables and you can calculate your average revenue flow off of those tables, could be a great investment. So that would be productive debt. And so the term for that is self-liquidating debt. The debt itself contains within it its own means of paying itself back. So this is an important distinction because we want to start separating that from what we'd call non-self-liquidating debt, right? Which is debt that you go out, you'd go into debt to go on a vacation. There's that debt doesn't 
pay itself, doesn't have a cash flow embedded within it. Or you build military hardware and you blow stuff up. <clears throat> Again, that's debt that once you take it on, it just sits there. And so we have to understand the extent to which we are as a nation, as a society, as individuals, as a corporation, are you, are you accumulating productive debt or unproductive debt? Is it self-liquidating debt or non-self-liquidating debt? That's the difference, because if you build up a whole lot of non-self-liquidating debt, that just has to be carried and carried and carried, and eventually that sinks the ship. And so it's important to know where you are with that. Again, so what is debt? Debt is, I'm going to borrow money today so I can enjoy this car I'm going to consume today, and I'm going to pay that money back tomorrow, or a whole lot of tomorrows, right, over the term of that loan, which means that really what debt is, typically it, it represents future consumption taken today. So I buy a house. I can enjoy that house starting today, but I'm going to have to pay that house off over a very long period of time. So that is just future consumption taken today, particularly for the non-self-liquidating debt. It's purely consumption. Things I'm going to do today, I'm going to have to pay back tomorrow out of some other set of activities. Okay. Now there's only two ways that you can extinguish a debt. One, you pay it back. That's obvious. Two, you default on it. Okay, that's it. Those are the only two ways you or I have to extinguish a debt. Now, governments, they have a, they have a third way. They have a third way of going about this, and that is called the print and pay. You just keep printing money, and you print money, and you keep printing money, which is exactly the circumstance we find ourselves in today. It, but that, again, as we discussed in the chapter on money, and the, particularly the chapter on inflation, what that does, that print and pay model is you actually, if you're the government, you are stealing from everybody's existing money out there, little nips off the corners of every coin out there in order to fund yourself today. So that is still future consumption taken today, but you pay for it, not by paying the debt back, honestly, because that never gets paid back. I'll show you the data on that. At least it hasn't so far. What you do is you, you go out and you basically nip purchasing power from everybody else out there who's saved currency or money, whatever you're calling it. So that's it. Those are the three ways that can be taken back, um, debt can be taken away, but only one of those is available to a government and not to you. So this was me in 2008 in the original version of the Crash Course. I'm like, wow, this is bad. <laughs> Lol, so quaint. Look at that, $9.44 trillion of, of debt. And I thought that was too much at the time, and I still do, but... Um, here's where we are in 2023. That green line shows where we were in 2028. I'm like, okay, what is what what WTF? What is happening here? What is the plan? How are we going to ever pay that back? Is there a plan to pay it back? And the answer is no. You can see what the plan has been ever since that you see that that chart turns the corner there, right again, right around 1970. Because 1971, August 15th to be precise, is when the US system of money became untethered from gold or from anything tangible. And this is the system we've been running ever since as if this is a permanent system. It was well thought out. We all know exactly how it's going to end and there's a plan. There's no plan. The plan is to keep running this system like this. This is the debt-based system. This is why I'm here alerting you to this because what it means is that the keepers of this system are going to keep operating it as they have since August 15th, 1971 until it breaks. And there are a lot of things between here and 2030 or 2028, if you're using my original 20 year time frame, 
that I can show you where it looks like there's lots of chances for this to finally break. And this is going to go down on your watch, our watch. And when it does, it's going to be extraordinarily disruptive. And there are ways to minimize or limit that disruption to you, which is what we do at Peak Prosperity. We talk about this resilience all the time. And resilience meaning things like emotional resilience, spiritual resilience, very important. Uh, social capital, you should build that up. You might want to have more skills, right? Um, things like that. So that's really a reaction or response to this. This is crazy town. And you know what's extra crazy? Nobody has an actual plan for any of this. In fact, <clears throat> when we compare, you know, you, well, you could say, you know what, let me, let me be, let me, let me throw a critique to this. You know what, Chris, it doesn't actually matter how much debt you have. It matters how much debt to income you have. So if Bill Gates is a hundred million dollars in debt, so what? If you're a hundred million dollars in debt, Chris, that's a problem. You're and you're right. You're right. Now here, what we're looking at is total debt in the system, which is about $94 trillion right now. That's the blue line on top, <clears throat> the dark line and blue on top with the blue debt marker. I guess those are black lines. And then GDP, which we'll call income in this story for the United States. Lots of other countries look exactly the same at this point in time. And you can notice two things about this. One, there's a lot of debt relative to GDP. And two, that debt has been growing at a faster pace than the GDP. So let's imagine now, this is a household. Maybe it's your household. You have credit card debt. Your credit card debt is going up by 10% a year and your salary or your income is going up by 4% a year. Eventually you have a math problem on your hands, right? And so that's exactly the analogy we should be using here is the United States has been racking up its debt at a far faster pace than its economy has been growing. And everybody seems to be okay with that, but it's not okay. Common sense tells you that it's just, it just doesn't work out. It's not okay. In fact, it's so obvious that in a recent, uh, in 2023, there was a Senate hearing. Cynthia Loomis out of Wyoming asked Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve at that time, about this exact question. And he said, quote, the problem is that we are on a path where debt is growing substantially faster than the economy. And that, by definition, is in the long run, unsustainable. Of course it is. And it's just common sense. This, this is what he's talking about. This is unsustainable. Unsustainable means it will someday stop. <clears throat> and this is where we need to ponder. What do you mean, Chris? What, if it stops, what does that mean? It means your debt markets break. It means your financial markets break. It means your whole economy, by extension, suffers a breakdown. And especially the degree to which your economy is dependent on the debt for the growth because GDP and debt are related concepts here because you borrow money and spend it into the economy so the economy grows. But did it really? It actually didn't. Um, that's a, It's a fiction. So a lot of our economic power in the United States is a fiction based on the concept of borrowing at a faster rate than the economy is growing. And that, by definition, in the long run, is unsustainable. Welcome to the long run, folks. It's coming due and it's coming down the pike at astonishingly fast pace speed. Editorially, everything you see now with the social unrest that's happening in France or the, the, the increased shoplifting or the homelessness or all these sort of markers of distress that you see socially, these are all expressions, I believe, of the idea that the system itself is no longer able 
to provide like it used to in the past because it's overburdened with debt, bad investments, malinvestments, non-self-liquidating debt, non-productive borrowing, all of that, and it's starting to weigh down and people are feeling it. And so that's part of the social unrest that we see. And it also explains why the powers that be are so interested in trying to control everybody with central bank digital currencies, with um, social surveillance and, and control programs and social credit scores and pat, you know the so-called digital IDs and passports, all of that. All of that is because the system itself is unsustainable. Everybody who can look at a chart and understand it knows that this is the case. And so this isn't special information. Guaranteed, Team Elite has this same information. And so if you're on Team Elite and you look at this and you go, what do we, what do we do with this? Well, one thing is the Great Reset, right? Um, this clearly says we need a Great Reset, but how would you do that? Like, what happens? A lot of disappointed people when you hit that Reset button. So what do you do? But you can't just do nothing. So that's why this is such an important chapter on debt. On, because this fundamentally is the is the underpinnings of why we're on this unsustainable trajectory and why something has to be done about it. Um, because either you do it on your terms or it happens on some other terms. So this is this is information. This is the kind of stuff we should be talking about here in the United States and across the whole world. We're not. We're talking about all kinds of things that are ancillary to this, maybe symptoms of this that actually aren't um, really relevant or important. Because when your money system breaks, that's when, that's our social contract. It's our glue. And that's what we're talking about here is our, that's what Jerome Powell's saying. He's talking about how our money system breaks. And then all kinds of ills happen. You know, we have a just-in-time system of delivering goods and products and services. Nobody really grows their own food anymore. Cities have three to five days of food on hand. We need things to come from all over the world in a uninterrupted, coordinated, and complicated, if not complex fashion, in order for everything that we know in our standard of living to continue. And that requires an intact and functioning money system. And so we ought to be talking about this. This is a really big deal. So that's why we're talking about it. Okay. So there's a key concept baked in there too, though, <clears throat> is that growing debt levels implicitly, if not explicitly, Assume that the future economy is going to be larger than the present. So let's let's flush this out a little bit because it's a really important concept. Again, if we have economy growing this fast, but we have debt growing this fast, the assumption that debt's making is that somehow the economy is there in the future to pay it back. It's an implicit assumption. And this is the core of the crash course is the answer to this, which is like, is that a good assumption? And if it's not, then what? Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. So at current levels of debt that exist in the United States is equivalent to every single household. And so I've represented households as units of four here has $756,000 of debt associated with it at the moment of its formation that it is responsible for paying back somehow because it is the households that pay back every piece of debt in a country. I mean, you've heard this, oh, you know, we owe it to ourselves. Oh, it, corporations have the debt. Oh, the government has the debt. What's a corporation? It's a group of people. What's the government? It's actually of the people, by the people. Oh, fundamentally, every unit of debt in a country is going to be paid back by its citizens on some way, somehow, right? Or not. So the first gut check is, is it realistic to think that 
each and this is this is without any independent debt this household any of these households may take on for their mortgage for their cars for student loans that that's separate that would be additive to these numbers the question here is is it does it make sense to think that every single household over the course of its life is going to be able to pay back under current terms seven hundred and fifty six thousand dollars and if not then you have a little gut check where you go oh that's not possible well then what remember there's only two ways for debt to be paid back you pay it back or you default on it. That default is that unsustainable ending thing that Jerome Powell was hinting at. And I wish Cynthia Loomis had pressed him and said, okay, Jerome, your thoughts, you, you know, you've got a lot of PhDs there at the Federal Reserve. If it turns out it's unsustainable and it, and it, it stops, what does that stopping look like exactly? Right. And that is what we would call a deflationary collapse. It would be a very, very bad thing. It would be like the Great Depression, but on steroids and or it has to go down path number three which is we can't afford the defaults too ruinous so we're going to have the government begin to print up the money or the federal reserve print up the money right in, in equivalent terms so then you go down the inflation path but that's it those are your two two paths once you've gone too far past the can't pay it back stage it's an inflationary path or it's a deflationary path both are socially destructive for very different reasons, but the outcome is almost identical. All right, let's carry on. So let's just look at just how extraordinary and unusual and amazing this is. So as of June 1st, 2023, I pulled this debt down. Federal debt was 31.4 trillion. This is just federal debt. There's all these other forms of debt getting us to that 90 trillion, right? You got corporate debt, household debt, etc. This is just federal debt, okay? 31.4 trillion. What's remarkable is, <clears throat> That on the fourth quarter, at the end of the fourth quarter of 2019, that debt was just 23.2 trillion. So, you know, COVID, emergency, got to do all this printing. We did that. But that means that there was $8.2 trillion of debt taken on in just two and a quarter years, because that's the end of 2019. So that would have been 2020, 2021, 2022. Oops, three. Yeah, in uh, just three point two, five years, <clears throat> right? 2020, 21, 22. Yep. Three, just three and a quarter years, $8.2 trillion in three years, a little over three years, but, uh, oh, um, yeah, I said 2.25 years. I knew I got that mentally correct that to 3.25 years. All right. But that's the same amount as the country had accumulated by the fourth quarter of 2005. Isn't that astonishing? In just three and a quarter years, as much debt was put on the federal system as the entire federal government had required throughout its entire existence to accumulate by 2005. So think of all the stuff that had happened by 2005, right? It's astonishing. Every road built, every war fought, every, every, every possible thing that had ever been done in the name of this country by 2005 took as much debt as was slathered on between 2019 and 2023. That doesn't say something. I don't know what does, but that's that's astonishing to me. All right, carrying on. This is a really important concept. So we established early in an earlier chapter on money that money is a claim on human labor. So I can't think of a single thing I can buy where I'm not actually putting a claim you know, somebody had to do something. Some people had to work and work hard and take risks to get me something. If I bought, say, a 10-ounce silver bar, you're saying you're not buying human labor. 
Okay, it's a 10 ounce silver bar. But no, for this silver bar to get here, somebody had to go out, prospect, find a mine, go into, you know, open a mine up, get all the machines out, dig like crazy, crush things down, smelt it. Somebody had to fabricate this, had to get shipped here. It showed up on my doorstep when the big brown truck of happiness came and all that, right? <clears throat> that's all labor. So anything I can spend money on is going to be human labor involved. So money is, a, that's what it is. When we save money, we're actually saving a claim on human labor. All right. Secondarily, well, then debt is a claim on future money, right? So if I take a 30-year mortgage, somebody has a claim on 30 years of money, future money, which means using the transitive rule, one compared to two, is that it's a key concept. Debt, therefore, is a claim on future human labor and on economic output. So that's what it is. So more and more and more debt says that we're in the system says, wow, we're going to put more and more and more claims on the future, because that's what debt is, a claim on the future, and specifically a claim on future human labor and on future economic output. So interesting concept there, right? Now, let me put this in perspective. It wasn't always this way. This is a chart that shows total credit market debt expressed as a percent of GDP. So if you see a number on the left axis, like 300, that means 300% compared to GDP. It means that there's three times as much debt in the system as there is GDP in that given moment in time. So as we look past on this whole thing, um, we see here that in September of 2007, when I first put this chart together, uh, it was uh, 342%. It, it had to bust out of the chart a little bit to make that even happen. And if you look at this chart, it goes back to 1920. And you see that big spike there, right? You see, um, let's see if I can that spike there that you see in 1929, that wasn't because debt was going up. It was because GDP was going down. So the debt was in the system. Actually, debt went down a little because it was being defaulted on, but the GDP fell away even farther. So it made the ratio go up. That's what that spike is. But outside of that spike in 1929, you can see that the United States had held roughly about 160% of debt to GDP. And that was there was a ratio there that you wouldn't really want to have more debt than income over any given period of time. So so and again, this is through all sorts of different periods of time and circumstances, wars, you know, depressions, things like that. So that's the whole history of the country, except notice something happened there again in the 1970s, early 1980s, something happened and the, the country decided, you know what, let's just let's just start borrowing because you know what? It works and it, nothing's broken. So we went down this borrowing path and went on a very sustained path. Now, that red part I just circled there, that's been how it's been for long enough that everybody in power today thinks that's level ground. Not that green spot down there, but this most recent, and it's a very recent experiment. This whole thing of this is how the system works and this is how debt works and you can always just keep accumulating more debt and it's not a problem because nothing is broken so far is a entirely new experiment. It started about in the in the 80s and so that's it. So we have, what, 40 years of experience saying, well, that's just how the world works now, I guess. Listen, in a couple hundred years when they look back, it's going to be this little blip, right, of time when they say, wow, that was, that was dumb. Shouldn't have done that because your money system is your social contract. It's your glue. It's what makes everything stick together and work. And when you fundamentally debase and erode and otherwise violate the terms of that social contract, 
eventually the contract breaks. It's unsustainable. Just is. Unless you think that we can constantly, 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 forever make debts a larger and larger proportion of the economy. But how does that work? Isn't it true that debt is really just a claim on that future economy? So shouldn't there be some ratio or relationship between the future economy, its size, what it can produce, the amount of goods and services it can it can fashion, and the claims that people are going to make on that? Right. Now, the reason this hasn't been as big a problem as it could have been, should have been before now, is because the Federal Reserve, in its infinite wisdom, decided to start offloading a lot of its printing to wealthy people, billionaires, the top 0.1% specifically. And you know what's fun about those people? They can accumulate a lot of debt, uh, your debt, without, you know, calling it or spending it. Because there's only so many jets and so many, you know, plates of caviar and so many trophy properties any one billionaire can consume. So by shoveling a lot of our debt over to these billionaires, one, they've created an overlord billionaire class that has a lot of power and control. But secondarily, it, it, that's a relief valve that has allowed the system to go on longer than it otherwise might because they're just stocking all that debt up and all those claims and not spending them directly on the things that that debt really represents a claim on. But what that has done by having all of those concentrated wealth claims in one spot is that fundamentally, again, because debt represents a claim on future human labor, future humans are being enslaved by this process of debt accumulation and creation. And it's just not a, it's not a good plan. It's just not a good plan. And so that's why we're talking about it. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, no, I had to put, <laughs> this is, this is current. Um, so we're at 370% debt to GDP right now, at least twice as much as it should be, uh, compared to a long run historical average back there in the green. So it's not a, not a, not a great plan, but it's completely, completely unsustainable. And we know that. And it's also socially destructive and corrosive. And we know that. And yet here we are, um, just carrying on. So <clears throat> by the way, that's just debt. Ray Dalio's firm, uh, Bridgewater Capital, they, they put together this chart back in 2017. And this is adding up, not just the debt. Cause you see here, let me get, let me see what I got here. Um, doo -doo -doo. Yeah. Uh, let me get my, my highlighter out. So you see here, this is government debt in blue. That's on the bottom down here expressed as a percent of GDP. That's what this chart is up here. This is 0%. That's 200%, 400 and so on. There's private debt. Okay. Which is here. Um, and so that those two together come to about 94 trillion right now. Um, but then there are these things called pension liabilities and Medicare and social security. And that's these larger things up top here. And so altogether, those are about 1100% of GDP, 1100% of GDP, because these are liabilities. And again, you know, you, you can change the law and you don't have to pay people social security and you know, you don't have to pay Medicare, I guess, or all that. But th again, that's the social contracts that we've made with ourselves, right? And there's not a single example anywhere in the world of a country ever digging out from this pile of IOUs. That's just the nature of the beast. So because these things can't be paid back by any possible combination of future economic growth or invading another country and, and seizing their wealth, there's no possible combination of factors that could pay this back, which means there's only one question to resolve. Who's going to eat the losses? 
And that's why this is such an exceptional chapter and so important because I don't want you to have to eat the, the losses. This is also known as the, all this stuff I'm talking about. This is going to be the fundamental carrier system for a wealth transfer, meaning we have all these paper promise tickets and unfunded IOUs floating around in, in the system. And somehow people have all imagined that when their turn comes and they retire, they're going to be able to draw on those things. They're going to have meaning and value. And that's not going to be true because they can't be all paid back. So they won't all be paid back. And that's an easy statement to make. So if they're not going to be paid back, well, what happens? This is why we talk about things at peak prosperity. There's plans you can take, things you can do to avoid, evade that. The short answer is you definitely want to be holding as few of the paper promise tickets as you can and more of the real assets that form the fundamentals of real wealth. But we've talked about that before and we'll be talking about that more in the future. Now, speaking of those particular IOU promises that Ray Dalio's firm put together that said, hey, you can't pay these. This is from the Congressional Budget Office. This came out in December of 2022 where they said, oh, hey, uh, Social Security systems actually broke uh, by 2033. Um, it's going to go to zero. And that's that's what we're looking at here. This is um, a ratio of trust fund balance to scheduled payments. So if you see something like a four, it says, wow, there, there's four times as many assets as the payments going out. But you can see this starts to erode over time and goes to zero here at 2033. And disability insurance looks like it's going to last a little bit longer. But when you combine disability insurance, it's it's a tiny it's a tiny piece. It doesn't change anything when we take the social security system, which is a blue line and combine that with the disability insurance and the black line, it doesn't change where those two land. So disability insurance is just factor that out mentally. It's kind of meaningless in the larger context. What's meaningful is this event right here. Now, <clears throat> actually turns out social security systems already broke. And we've known that for a long time because it doesn't actually have any cash in the system. You know what it does have? This was amazing. When George W. Bush went out, and this was the most irresponsible thing I've ever seen a president do up to that point in time, was he went to the office where the Social Security Trust Fund is contained. It's yes, it's in that nice filing cabinet right there. And that's it. That's the whole thing. That is the Social Security Trust Fund. It is a series of coupons in a three ring binder that says, uh, we, we borrowed this money and spent it and we're going to pay it back. This is the government's, those are treasure, those are special treasury bonds. So one branch of the government borrowed money from another branch of the government, spent it, and then said, this is an asset over here. It's crazy accounting that if you were a corporation, it, that would be called Enron subsidiary level accounting and you would go to jail. Um, but because it's the government, they get to do what they want, I guess. So anyway, but that is the trust fund. That's it. It is a series of coupons that uh, say there's money there, <laughs> but they're not. They're, they're IOUs from the Treasury Department. <clears throat> all right. This is all why I say the next 20 years are going to be completely unlike the last 20 years. And that's just the nature of the business. All of this stuff is coming to, coming due. Um, we're going to have to have huge changes across the whole system. I can't possibly predict what those are going to look like yet. But prediction time, getting to 2030, if we want to use the WEF's time frame without a major financial or economic catastrophe, would take a miracle. I don't think we're going to have that miracle. So again, all we need to know about debt is that it's consumption today. You pay for it in the future. And we've got these this ridiculous ratio, you know, rate, um, relationship with debt. 
that fundamentally is resting on this ridiculous concept that the future can always be larger than the present. Now, that's been true for the past 100, 200 years. It's not a good assumption to make going forward for reasons that we're going to get into in later chapters. All right. So this is the question, prime question we have to ask and resolve for ourselves. Is this, can an economy simply continue to get larger without any limit, right? Well, now we're going to have to talk about what an economy is, and where the actual wealth in an economy comes from. And surprise, real wealth is not money. Money is a claim on that real wealth. What is real wealth? And then when we have that real wealth conversation, we have to have an actual conversation about resources and how much stuff is there and all of this and that. So that is the conversation we will increasingly be having. If a subsidiary question to that, though, is already, is it already true that too many claims, debts have been laid on the future? And if that's true, then we have just one subsidiary question to resolve, which is this. Okay, if it's yes, are we going to face inflation or default? Because remember, once you've said there's already too many claims on the future, the number option one is already gone. Pay it back. We've got to draw a bright red line across that. That does not exist. So you either default on it or you inflate your way past it. You pick, right? They each have different but kind of related and similar corrosive effects. They're both very, very damaging. They both result in, you know, lots of people, particularly on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, which, by the way, that might include everybody from the 98% level on down, given how bad this stuff is I'm talking about. But that's it. That's our fundamental question to resolve right now is inflation or defaults. I think we already have our answer. We've talked about it in the context of the Federal Reserve. They always prefer to print, 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 print. Governments always prefer to print, print, print. Um, lots of reasons for that, but that's kind of how I see it. All right, let's summarize this up. We have uh, debt is a claim on future human labor. We've established that. We saw that, again, that should say 3.25 years. Debt has increased by $8 trillion in just the past three years or so. And our debt markets assume that the future will be much larger than the present. And that is the concept we're going to be exploring in future chapters because this is really, really critical. Once you get those pieces together, you are in a position to go, like I did, if you, like me, come to the same conclusion, you'll go, Oh, yeah, it's totally unsustainable. Not going to happen. And if it's not, what are the implications? And given those, what actions should I be taking today? So the debt can't really ever be paid back. There's just too much at this point. And remember, that debt has to be paid back from future labor and or future economic activity. That's why it has any value at all. And that's why we have only one question left before us. Who is going to eat the losses? And that Resolution of that question, always, 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 the banks are going to be busy saying, not them. They want their bailouts whenever they get in trouble and they want you to pay for it. And of course, they have the levers of power under their tight control. So the banks are pretty sure it's not going to be them. Um, the wealthy elites are going to make sure it's not them. Um, certain countries are going to make sure it's not them, right? So the whole question of who's going to eat the losses is, to me, no longer a debatable, like we can't even debate that that's the question. That is the question. The question is, how do you avoid that and what can you do about that? And there are a lot of things you can do about that. You have to have the right context. You have to know what's going on. You have to be able to see it clearly this way. You have to surround yourself with other people who can see it this way so that you can bounce ideas and start to figure things out and get models and see what other people are doing about it so that you can take action. 
That's the model we run at Peak, Peak Prosperity, and it's vitally important that you do this. Or tell me how I got all this wrong, because it's always possible I got all this wrong. Um, but I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. Um, prediction time. Um, so, sorry that runs off a little bit, but that's the whole word spending there. Uh, the U.S. government's going to keep deficit spending, and it's going to keep adding to the debt piles. Guaranteed about that. Number two, the Federal Reserve is going to keep printing money and they're as fast and as long as necessary to keep the whole thing glued together because that's what they do. And that leads to this, that somewhere before 2030 and possibly as soon as 2025, that's my prediction, a massive oil supply crisis, long story, will manifest and thoroughly wreck those above plans right there. And no, spoiler alert, green energy is not going to save the day. And that gets us back to the resource story primarily all right that's what we're talking about there and thank you very much for listening today we are now going to go over for anybody who's interested at peak prosperity we're going to be talking about the implications of all this and what you can specifically do about it with that thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this chapter it's super important to me that you get it and that you understand it and take action so with that thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time bye-bye everyone